Have you all had a big dose of the D plus yet? The good old Disney plus. Oh yeah. A little bit. Um. Uh, dabbling in the Star Wars action. Um. Watched Phantom Menace. Uh, first thing I watched though was Remember the Titans, which was a interesting <laughs> rewatch to say the least. I love that you're. You're hitting all the big things out of the park. Remember the Titans and Phantom Menace? All the nostalgic points. That's the thing, yeah. I think it appeals to, like, that's the first thing we all rush to look at at Disney+. Plus. It's like, what's all the shit we loved growing up? And we all added that to our watch list. That, that's exactly. What the, yeah, actually, they're right in that 99-2000 range, so good stuff. Remember the Titans? What's that scene? Is that the one where they're on the bus and they're the they're singing the "Ain't No Mountain High Enough"? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's that's a moment in football movie history. Oh yeah, it's it's crazy how great of a cast there was too. Like a bunch of young people that were really gonna pop up immediately after. Like you got you know tiny little Ryan Gosling in there. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I might not remember it as well as I thought. I think he's like sixteen he's in it or something. Yeah. Yeah, Sunshine. Yeah. That's a great movie. Sunshine! Yeah. It's totally yeah, worth it revisiting. I, I'm glad that you still loved it, Tyler. You know, uncertain at seeing I'm sure having not seen it since high school. Oh, yeah. It had been a, a very long time, but I still remembered it well. Like, I think I saw it a fair amount back in the day, so. Oh, yeah. It's because they played it, like, ten times in, you know, like, throughout your years in, in high school. I know I saw it in basically every right. class. It's, uh... It, it was the substitute for... Teaching, you know, about uh, race relations, I guess. Exactly. Kids, this is how we're going to uh, tackle racism. We're, we're going to play some football. <laughs> going to literally tackle <laughs> it. <laughs> but have you guys remembered the Mandalorians? No, no. What is that? Tell us about it. I don't even know what a fucking Mandalorian is, because it's nothing that's ever come up in Star Wars before, in my experience yeah. of it. It's not in the the actual text of the stories, but the uh, the the warriors or the race or whatever that the the Boba Fett and them have always been a part of or have been canonically uh, called Mandalorians. That's what the the symbol is as well on the helmet there. Mm. That's what I like about the show is it's getting into that nitty gritty of what's going on in the Star Wars universe behind the scenes. It's the imagined space I always had in my head of I really love the Boba Fett like everyone. I want to see where he comes from. <laughs> I don't, it was always one of those things where I felt he was a character who worked best just as that cool, mysterious presence. Like, I don't know how much you would know about him, but I'm glad they're at least not tackling Boba Fett specifically, right? It's like a different <laughs> yeah, yeah, character. Yeah, yeah, um, Okay, so that, that's good at least. You can leave the mystique of Boba Fett there, but still tackle him in a kind of roundabout way. What about the mystique of the way aliens take a shit on spacecrafts? <laughs> Is that a thing they show? I haven't, I haven't watched the show because you know I, I'm not watching new things, but that's interesting. It is. It's a. It's something they explore in depth. No, it's like a minute of the show. Um, it's going like an entire minute. Yeah, it's going down like that Ryan Johnson path where we go have some humor in it. Um, we get a very great Werner Herzog too. Mm-hmm. Well, that, I think that was the most exciting thing announced about the show is that Werner Herzog was going to be in it, which is just like the most. <laughs> interesting casting decision like it, yeah. i don't know i i don't 
like who who thought those two worlds should combine? I don't know, but whoever they are, they're a genius. I know. Now I think they should have always been combined. Uh, I I see Herzog on there, and he he's going on interviews saying how he's never watched Star Wars movies. Um, <laughs> I think my favorite tidbit so far is how he called the Baby Yoda devastatingly beautiful. He's not wrong. Uh, there was that nice. Uh... No. <laughs> And that's been blowing up the internet lately, is the Baby Yoda. You're seeing that everywhere now. Because <laughs> it's it's gorgeous. I, have you seen it? It's even... It's cute. I can't... It's yeah. even better than the smooth Yoda memes. I can't deny that it's it's a little cute little baby thing. And it's, again, I think that's a nice logical decision to go with things. You keep exposing the world of Star Wars to the races we've seen at various different points. Like, so we know that there are other... Yoda-like species out there. He's not just a singular entity. Do we know the name yeah, of that I mean, species? I don't think we do. Probably. Look, I, I knew what the Mandalorian was. That's my t- Star Wars tidbit today. I don't. I'm not a well of knowledge for Star Wars guys. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I think that's why we call him Baby Yoda because we don't have like an official name in any capacity. Uh, I think we might figure more out about them though, which is kind of exciting. I want to know about the Yodas course don't we all i mean that's been my dream and i've seen like two people complain about it like oh star wars is just getting by on cute porgs and yodas what do you think ewoks were it's always been inherent in star wars well i mean that's that was a huge complaint people had with star wars back then too but at this point it's an integral part of star wars like if you're fighting against that aspect of star wars it's a losing battle star wars has already surpassed you in that aspect and you might as well just give up oh yeah yeah the memes are inherent in star wars i I don't think it's a bad thing i i mean this is the when when he comes up to the the little crib with the taiki watiti robot and they're looking in there and he gives a Watiti, the little blaster, a little taste of his blaster, because he tries to harm the baby Yoda. That's that's victory right there. You know, I've kind of accepted that Star Wars is evolving beyond my own interest and investment mm. in the series. Um, you know, even the last couple films, they haven't impressed me too much, but I think I've finally reached that point of acceptance because that's just how Star Wars has kind of always been. Even when the, the prequels came out, you know, most people still generally hate them. Even, you know, Tyler here says that Phantom Menace was a really bad rewatch, but, you know, that's how some of us got our first introduction to Star Wars, and that's some of the stuff we grew up loving and liking, and so a whole new generation has that with these new sequels and these new uh you know shows and such going on and that's just how star wars is going to end up being it's just going to be something different for each generation and if that i think that's perfectly fine in this one i think they gave me what i thought i wanted but i didn't know if that was really the right thing to do anymore uh this is what i wanted at like 13 14 you know i'm 31 now so so there are 13 and 14 year olds out there who are going bananas over this. I hope so. I hope so. Uh, Tyler, what do you think of Phantom Menace? <laughs> uh, I would say uh, stay away. Stay very, very, <laughs> very far away from that rewatch. If yeah, if like me, like you had um, some sense of like you know. Like, I would make cases for it when talking about it with people because I hadn't seen it in over 10 years. And I'm like, you know, like, why does everybody hate this movie so much? Like, (laughs) Darth Maul's awesome. The pod race is awesome. Like, how can you hate this movie? 
and then I watch it and I'm like, oh, there's a whole nother movie that's two hours that's just shitty. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but those two things are pretty good that you named. Uh, right. I think those are you the things what? we hold on to, though. Exactly. So. I'm gonna be. I'm going to be a fan of Menace Apologist still, because I still enjoy lots of things about it, especially like the relationship between Liam Neeson and Ewan McGregor, and, that is and of course the final fight stuff. The, the music is great, and, you know, it's it's not all bad. I'm not going to say it's good, but there's good things exactly. in it, to a point that I still I, I still love many things about it. And actually, Calvin, you're going to get a kick out of this, I'm sure, because you guys like to make fun of the fact that I'm always seen wearing hats. Oh. I actually have, I have a Darth Maul beanie with horns <laughs> on it. David... You know what? That I, I bring out I bring out for the winter time. You, it's nice and cozy. You may have gone too far <laughs> in a few places. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, how do we even recover from this? <laughs> um Welcome to the Twin Geek Cast with Calvin and David and guest editor Tyler Hartford. All podcasts and no play makes the Twin Geeks dull boys. This week we have the Irishman, Borden Ferrari, and Dr. Sleep. What do we have for our feature presentation? For our feature this week, we're looking at Stanley Kubrick's 1980 horror masterwork, The Shining, starring Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall. And here's Tyler. <laughs> First time we've all seen Irishman. Yes, I'm very excited. I've, I think I'm the last one to the party here. Uh... I finally got to go see Irishman this last weekend. Hell yeah! And it was great. Yeah, it was phenomenal. What a movie! It was it was long. It was long though. It was very long. Very long movie. I I told you I I spoiled the whole thing last week. I said it's very long. It is. It it felt very long. You know, I think the most shocking thing about the film was that I managed to get it right, so I didn't have to get up and use the bathroom during the three and a half hours. Me too. I had to take a one one and a half two minute break. I had to run out and. It's a do, long movie. Do you movie. know which part you missed at? Do you know which part you missed? Um, it was before we got to Hoffa there, something in the early on. I, I knew I should have done it before. I was running late. Yeah. I made sure to excise everything so good, because I have a, infamous problems with having to use the bathroom in theaters. I think during, uh, was it X-Men Apocalypse, I got up three different times to use the bathroom, but I'm, I'm sure some of it was just because the movie was so boring. It was all stuff around his relationship with his wife and stuff. Uh, when I got back in, he was talking to his daughter, and it seemed like she was trying to figure out what he was doing. I don't think I missed anything, really. I think uh, generally I found like the it's the second half of the film that where things really take off once Hoffa comes into the picture, oh, yeah. and then especially that last third I would say of the film is just where the super meat and purpose of the film truly is. Uh, not that the first part is bad by any means. Yeah, uh, Tyler, where, what did you think? You think it was a little bit too long, or? Uh, no way. Uh, I was completely sucked in, uh, basically from the beginning, yeah. man. Uh, I'm not. I'm never one who's like opposed to a long movie. I, I think that's a little, no. a little lame, personally. I mean, it, it, if it's like a slog of a film, sure. But uh, just the idea of a movie being long it doesn't usually ever bother me. No, I have an infinite attention span, so I might have to get up for the bathroom. But otherwise, uh, I don't really care. Yeah, it just uh, it kind of depends for me. I guess like I always find it daunting when there's a film and yeah. usually it it makes me want to put it off for a while okay. until i just finally decide screw it i have enough time but i want to make sure i saw this in theaters and you don't feel 
the runtime so much. It feels like a lot of movie, but it's paced so excellently that it never feels like three and a half hours. Yeah. It does feel like a gangster epic. There's so much in this movie. Yeah. It's certainly... Uh, it It's definitely an epic. I would describe it that way, yeah, because it spans, like, what, four decades? Five decades? It's crazy. Something like that. I think, and and that's the the kind of big selling point of the film as well is that the the technological feats of it with the you know uh, digital de aging on De Niro and Pacino and Pesci involved is actually really incredible with the film. We've seen this in the works for like you know a decade or so or more now, but it's I mean you can really see now we've reached a point where it doesn't impede on any performance or anything, and it just really enhances the kind of films we can make Mm -hmm. now. Oh yeah, I think I, I think when I see it from now on, I might ha- not have the same hesitancy that uh, even with the Irishman, people were thinking, "Oh, you know, this is a gimmick movie." Not at all. No, it's not, and um, it it definitely becomes obviously uh, less pronounced as the movie goes on because you know the characters are aging up to mm-hmm. to the actors' ages. Um, so I would say it's more noticeable in the beginning, um, but not not like in a distracting way or anything like that. I think there's only one time where I really thought it, the the sheen of the CG looked like too much, and that was in that very brief brief uh, like flashback moment where we saw Frank in World War Two, which we already yeah. had a clip of in the trailer, and so we kind of were like prepared for that mm-hmm. going in. Like they gave us like a peek of like this is the worst it's going to look at any point, and it's not that yeah. awful. Yeah, I'm glad they so, prepared us because that was the moment for me too, where he was a. Uh... Standing over like the foxholes there, and and that was like you yeah. know a two minute scene. It was it was nothing. Yeah, it was yeah, barely nothing. even that. Maybe it was nothing, which is why I was even more surprised it was in the trailer. I'm like, why is this? This isn't even a section of the film. This is a a, a second. It's a blip. <laughs> well, I like that in these mob movies. Uh, it's interesting. It never really says mafia. I feel like that moves that that word's like outlawed in the movies. Um, it's it's funny because we never get to see this middleman character. Uh, we never get to see this guy who's like the key to everything, like the operations behind the scenes. We always get like the, you know, the mob boss or someone that's a little bit higher up in the system. And I, I think one of the most incredible things for me, the film is just watching kind of Scorsese, how he's gracefully aged as a filmmaker. And you can see many of the roots of his techniques uh, throughout. We've been doing, you know, our whole kind of retrospective rewatch of Scorsese stuff in preparation to do our our uh, big list once this finally comes out on Netflix. And, you know, I think it's been a, a real joy to go through and see his technique evolve over time and kind of culminate in this, like, masterful command of the camera and performances. Yeah, um, I don't know if you guys want to give anything away for... Uh what you're working on with that but would you have this uh the irishman like solidly in the top five for him because i mean i'll say for myself i haven't seen all of his films but when i came out of the movie i was thinking like okay that was like a late career masterpiece like top echelon scorsese I think uh, I'm I'm definitely in agreement there. Uh, I, it's hard to say if it's top five specifically because there are a lot of great masterpieces from Scorsese in particular. And so if it doesn't edge into the five, it might at least make 
10 uh, but who knows it's especially for like the site because we're going to take everyone's opinion in accordance here and certainly yours we're going to drop that down actually right now here so we'll work um, that in for our uh, list if there's if it's not then it's only by virtue of everything else being really excellent right and, he has so much it, <laughs> it's not really on this movie which is a high nine or a low 10 at, at worst right yeah, that's that's basically. I think we all are in agreement there. And then you know the lowest ratings I've seen uh, amongst friends as well is like a you know a really high eight as well. It's really, just you know really just bullshit there. <laughs> <laughs> it's unacceptable. Unacceptable. That's such a low score. The performance uh, for, for this. The performances in the movie too. Like we we commented on uh, Scorsese, but the performances are just like ridiculously good too. So many good ones. Like. Uh, Ray Romano seeing him in a Scorsese mob oh, yeah. movie. Yeah. It was so cool. I think he's his best moments on screen in his career, and I didn't even mention him in the review. That's how good this movie is and how good the people in it are. Yeah. It's interesting. I'd like to see more from him because he recently had a really great role in The Big yes. Six a couple years back as well. Mm-hmm. What, was, and, what was he in recently? That I think it might have been that. that I was yeah, that's of. the big one. He the was big... really good in that. Big mm-hmm. Sick is just an excellent thing. I wouldn't be opposed to even podcasting that one day. I'm going to write it down and remember that one, because um, that, that was really good. I saw him in a Paddleton this year, which was a, he was very convincing in, um, with one of the Duplass brothers. I can never remember which one they are. That was another uh, Netflix movie, right? Yeah, yeah, he's doing some stuff with Netflix. Uh, that's pretty cool. Maybe he edged into a deal while doing this. So that's neat. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see more from him, but I agree with you, Tyler, there with all the performances, especially, I mean, obviously, uh, De Niro is just like this shining star of the film, and it's like, where has De Niro been for the past 20 years? <laughs> Waiting to make this movie, I think. Yeah. I think that's exactly what he's been doing, uh, and it's well, perfect. That- Mm-hmm. And that's the incredible thing as well is that this is the first time that Scorsese and De Niro have been together, uh, as well as Pesci, since uh, Casino in 1995. I'm just so glad they got Pesci out of retirement because uh, he he did not waste any time coming back. He uh, it's like nothing ever happened. No, he he feels exactly the same as he was, and I think <laughs> it's the great. the excellence of the CG is most clear on him because they give him that youthful, more full face in in yeah. the uh, earlier scenes, whereas versus his old person, you could see how how much more shriveled up he is, and so that shows you the incredible transformation they have going on there and it doesn't miss a beat in performances you don't feel like their faces are just like putty or anything it feels like we're watching the same people we did 20 years ago um speaking of high-end oscar material have you guys ever heard of frozen frozen (laughs) you're not doing this to us right now calvin right this isn't on the schedule i didn't sign up to talk about this (laughs) so there's a new movie called frozen coming out uh the day of this release uh you guys want to talk about this uh, movie? We'll seed uh, the floor to you, Cal. <laughs> um, well, if you guys have never heard of it, I don't know if this will mean much to you. I, I have heard of it, yes. I'm familiar with uh, the legendary Disney character of Olaf the Snowman. Oh, my favorite character, <laughs> yeah. It's so great because in this they make him a lot more cynical. Like he's rolled, like rolled weary and he... Looks like he's been through some real shit, and he's had existential dread forced upon him. Uh, he is permafrosted and deals with his permanence on the Earth in a different way. 
Uh, he thinks about how people that aren't permanent actually get to feel things and experience their moments. Um, it's uh, I took my daughter to the press screening, her first press screening, of course. Mm-hmm. It's more um, press screenings than I've had. Start her young. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we took her to the IMAX there. Uh, it was, man, uh, she really enjoyed it. Uh, for me, it's basically the same as Frozen. Anyway, uh, that's most of what I got on there. I, I have oh, a review going up that's like a letter to my daughter that I'd really like everyone to read. So it's it's a lovely I'm, review. I gotta oh, I you. gotta read it today when I was editing it. Tyler, please definitely check out Calvin's review. It's it's I think it's one of his best works for the site. It's really lovely. Great. I look forward to it. Definitely gonna read it. I don't believe you. <laughs> I, I know you are a uh, passionate uh, Frozen uh, fanatic. <laughs> I think it's like the Norwegian sense of like the adventure there that really gets to me. Like it speaks to me, but it never really explores that. So I'm like kind of on the edge waiting for a movie to come that never does. It is a cool setting. I I do like the snowy uh, setting. Funny, because this doesn't have any of that. (laughs) So it's not frozen. No, this is all autumnal and this is like autumn forest setting. Wow. Okay. I know, what a big change. Never say that yeah. Disney didn't innovate, please. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, what else we got on the docket here? You guys <laughs> you guys have a, a film to, in common to talk about right now, right? We got oh, a new, yeah. Uh, we have yeah. to have a big argument is now. It, it's Ford versus Ferrari time. Is it Vroom Vroom time? <laughs> it is. Bust out the, the dad mobiles? Yeah. So, the dad uh, biopic of the year. Mm-hmm. So, yeah... Uh, Tyler had a review for this early for us. It's already up on the site, uh, and I'm sure we'll put a, a link to it in our, our notes here for the podcast. But uh, you finally got around to seeing it now, right, Calvin? Yeah, and I loved it, of course. There's no way I wasn't going to love this movie. It's what I wanted from Fast and Furious, and I didn't get it. <laughs> it was one of your most hyped. I remember you've been you guys have been talking about it like all year like hyping up the Oscar Oscar yeah. buzz for it. And then when Tyler went and saw it, it was kind of like, oh, it's just an ordinary biopic. And so a lot of that came down. But now you're coming back in guns blazing and saying it's great. Okay, so one thing, Tyler's right. And the second thing, <laughs> um, I don't have a problem with it. I'm still in. Yeah, no, that that totally makes sense. A lot of people are going to love this movie. Um, I've, I've seen both takes, to be honest. That seems uh, you're... Yeah. But... Uh, yeah, I mean, the crux of how I reviewed it and my takeaway from the movie was, um, like, I went into it with pretty high expectations, to be honest. I'm like, all right, this is going to be one of the best movies of the year, probably. You know, we got Christian Bale, right. we got freaking Matt Damon. Uh, these guys are going for, you know, best actor wins. And I came out of it like, okay, that was that was good. That was like a... Uh, I likened it to uh, that movie Miracle. <laughs> uh, <laughs> also like, on Disney Plus. Yeah. Like the hockey movie? Yeah. yeah. It has that, like, tone. Like, yeah, we're going to, like, you know, America, feel good. It's all good. Does it, though? Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, yeah. Well, here's here's well, my rebuttal to this, is that it's very critical of Ford as a company. Yeah, that's true. 
Um, I think Tyler's I, comparison here is the idea that Miracle was very much this uh, American-driven film because it was about the American hockey team overcoming, you know, the Russians the during Soviets. the Cold War time. Yeah. yeah, and this is and this is kind of in the similar vein, but with more like trying but, to prove yeah. the prestige of American cars again over the Italian. Exactly. Yeah. Oh yeah, this is for like muscling in. Well, no pun intended there, but muscling into <laughs> the Ferrari market, seeing that. Uh, Enzo Ferrari's wasted all his money getting into racing and he's made, you know, excellent returns on the racetrack but making no money off it. So they realized they could do a little bit of both and they could kind of cross those lines and they bring in Shelby and they have him make the GT and uh, the rest is all just legend. I mean, I don't think we could spoil this, but America wins the Le Mans. I see what you're saying. <laughs> the, the the more you're saying about it in all these these terms specifically, I'm like, damn, this is a dad movie through and through. Fuck yeah, it is. I'm gonna watch this so many times, and I thought it was gonna be my film of the year the entire year. So I see what you're saying too, because I thought instant ten for me, right? And then it ended up being like a high eight. I, not great. I mean, I I wanted it to be you know every category on my awards. I think I'm just gonna put it in editing, maybe uh, some nods for acting, but not not talk. I did really like. Um... Matt Damon in it. He's he's a badass. Oh yeah. How did you feel about uh, Christian Bale though? Okay, okay. I I think it's nice having more of his traditional accent. Yeah, I just um, felt like I, he was really um, over the top with the performance, which is yeah. something that I think he's kind of famous for at this point. I think so. Yeah, yeah. it's not a muted performance by any. No, means. he's going for it. He's a total. Ri- british wrench monkey right like he's not the guy that ford wants representing their cars at all he's a huge publicity problem so uh, i think that's interesting in an, in an american picture like you say for the british guy to be the leader of the movie mm-hmm. um for me i think that uh damon does work a little bit better i i like his old characters like the bomber guy who drives the huge plane in for the ford event and he's like uh, you know, they're both like, oh, that's just a shitty Mustang. We're going to make a real sports car now. Yeah, I, I love that moment in the trailer, too, where he gets Ford in the car with him, and he's like, wants to convince him to, to have uh, <laughs> Christian Bale be his driver, and he's like, I'll uh, I'll scare this guy into it, and he just zooms around the track, and <laughs> Ford's, like, freaking out. I love that his assistants, like, this is where people t- typically shit their pants, right? And then they get the president of the car in his car that they built for him. And, yeah, you could see that he's got, like, the tears coming down. He's had this existential dread about what's, you know, maybe it's, like, his life splashing in front of him. But, really, it's just that his father couldn't see what he could accomplish. Yeah. Oh, sweet moment. I think that's the best moment of the film, too. Yeah, it might be, probably. Uh Otherwise, I I don't know. I'm gonna watch this so many times. I don't think it's bad. No, it's not bad. It's a good movie. It's it's not a amazing movie, but it is a good movie. Look, it it might be the most entertained I've been all year. I don't think it's the best movie, but it's a total dad movie, and I'm a dad, and I'm gonna watch this every day for the next year. Watch so the shit out of I'm it. I'm happy. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I don't even have to watch the Meg anymore for a bit. Uh, okay, so that's a good thing. Yeah, watch Ford v Ferrari. <laughs> Um, I like how you're just was, collecting these these vaguely like satisfying films, these kind of blockbustery <laughs> things, <laughs> and putting them least, all in one category. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as long as it's vaguely satisfying, because when you're dead, you don't want to be that cool, right? I don't want I don't want anything that's really edgy or, or really interesting. Hold on, did did uh, Jason Statham get an Oscar nomination for the Meg? 
He should have. Uh, <laughs> I mean, in my heart, he did. Okay. You know what we need to do, Calvin? We need to think up. This is going to be our Meg award for the site for a year. So it sounds like you're going to award Ford Ferrari as the Meg of the year. <laughs> oh, shit. I like this. That is good. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Every year I'm going to crown a new make, and this year it's totally Ford Ferrari because there's so much dadding going on in this movie, too. Really hard dadding, by the way. Um, yeah, Christian Bale really commits to the dad role with his son, uh, uh, his son Peter there, who loves watching him in the shop, and, you know, he's let him down. Oh, man. Yeah, you could watch this with your dad any day. It's perfect. One, All right. You, you're... One more thing I'd like to point out is um, that uh, Christian Bale's son in the movie is played by no- Noah Jupe. And he mm-hmm. uh, also plays. Um, uh, he, he plays Shia Bluff's son in Honey Boy. Honey Boy. Yeah. yeah. Which in, actually means he's playing Shia LaBeouf uh, as a young boy. Oh yeah. He plays the young version. Then it's Lucas Hedges, and then Shia's his father. Right. right? His own and father. J- Noah Jupe is fantastic in that movie. Looks like he's also in Wonder, which is, in my feeling, one of the most underrated kids' movies. I don't know if I've heard of that. Wonder? Um, it's a young adult novel. Uh, um, maybe a little bit of an autism story. Or, uh, or Oh, no, no. The boy had like facial differences, and he goes to school, and you know they help him get through it. It's a sweet movie. Mm. All right, I think we got a uh, one more new film uh, on here for discussion that kind of leads into our feature film here. Tyler, you've got a a new review and a perspective for us on uh, the sequel, Doctor Sleep. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I uh, speaking of dads, I went ahead and took my dad out to see Doctor Sleep uh, over the weekend. Um, because uh, growing up, uh, him and I, we would watch uh, The Shining together. Uh, quite often a movie we love um spoiler alert for later in the podcast um and dr sleep <laughs> spoiler we like this movie <laughs> <laughs> dr sleep is uh it's one of those um maybe cash grabs you might say that didn't turn out mm-hmm. to make a lot of cash <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, by the way it's down 56 percent this week yeah um, and I did not like it too much, no. Um, it's very tonally uneven, um, because it, so it's based off the book of Dr. Sleep, which is Stephen King wrote, I think it came out like, uh, maybe eight years ago, something like that, earlier in the decade. Um. Fairly recently, yeah. He kind of wrote it yeah, as yeah. a response to... Kubrick's film, I believe, like, because he famously uh, detests that film. Uh, he's like, Kubrick didn't, you know, make my vision of what The Shining is. So then, you know, years later now, he writes a sequel, uh, Dr. Sleep, and um, mixed reception on the book is what I've seen, um, as well as the movie, because in the movie, uh, director Mike Flanagan, he. Uh, I mean, he has a pretty good track record with horror movies the last few years, uh, as well as um, Haunting of Hill House for Netflix, um, which was a... He he did Gerald's Game for Netflix as well, which was a Stephen King. Right. Um, And so 
Which was, uh, they always thought that was unfilmable, right? Because it takes place within a woman's mind as she's strapped to the bed. Yes. Uh, that movie, I love that movie, actually. So that It's well done, actually. That, that yeah. was kind of part of the reason I was pretty hyped for this. Um, but uh, it's a tall task, because he's trying to combine Kubrick's film with Stephen King's uh, vision. And um, well, that's a, kind of, kind of falls definitely... apart, in my opinion. Go ahead. That was definitely one of the things that, watching the trailers, I was I was thinking was a really bad idea, that they pull so much imagery from uh, Kubrick's The Shining there that it just seems like you're trying to, to capitalize off of that and you end up bastardizing that for the sequel mm-hmm. here, which obviously, because it's an adaptation of King's novel and King's vision there, it's going to have near nothing to do with you know uh, Kubrick's original vision there. My feeling is probably choose one thing. Uh... I think doing two-thirds as the book adaptation and one-third at the end as Kubrick will always be an uneven movie. Uh, how's Ewan McGregor in it? He's fine. Um, very, yeah, that's a, a, a very McGregor um, standard performance. I mean, yeah, he's, that's all we really get. He's good. It's nothing like uh, extraordinary, but uh, you know, he holds his own. Obviously, he carries the movie. He's good. Um, but the star of the movie is Rebecca Ferguson, not, without a doubt. She's incredible uh, as the villain Rose the Hat. Um, and, oh yeah, I like the name. By yeah, the way. she she's awesome, man. She um, she's going for it. She's very over the top, campy, uh, leaning into like uh, kind of the ridiculousness of it of this um, premise. Um, mm. It's much more supernatural uh, focused than uh, Kubrick's film. That makes some sense. Yeah. Um, maybe well, maybe because the original book was a lot more like that. Right. Um, I'm not totally sure. Well, there's a lot more supernatural stuff, I believe, in the book of The Shining as well. Because like, you got the hedge is coming to life at one point and yeah. all that kind of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, should we just transition here? I think it's I think it's a good point to jump into the shiny. Yeah, uh, I think it's good too. It sounds like, and you know, if you want to read more of Tyler's thoughts, he's got a wonderful review up on the site. Um, but yeah, the shining. Uh, I think we are very glad and excited to talk about this. We're especially excited to bring you on here, Tyler, to discuss it because we know uh, it's one of your favorites. And uh, famously, me and Calvin here are not as big on the shining as everyone else is. Wah wah wah. <laughs> and and not in the sense that we don't like it we certainly i think both uh love it in ways but we're like not like oh it's a masterpiece it's the best horror film ever made like the general consensus i think is this one's kind of considered the the top of the list there which is kind of where i'm at you think which it's one of the top <laughs> uh well i mean I'm not going to sit here and say I'm a, a horror genre savant or anything like that, but uh, yeah, I think it is my favorite horror movie of all time, probably. I, and you know, I think that's fair. I don't, I don't disregard anyone who thinks it's their favorite or the best by any means, especially on this last rewatch. Uh, I can't help but admire the technical expertise of uh, Kubrick here and how uh, terrifying he makes things. I know, Calvin, you said that Shining doesn't scare you at all, but no, I, I'm, I'm inclined to disagree. I think it does have lots of very tense moments, powerful, especially in the use of the camera, the slow zooms in on certain moments, the very quick sudden zooms at some points, and the the music, the score especially, I found this time to be very effective. 
I mean, I think there's more tension in the Irishman. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? What do you mean by that? I mean, I think thrillers could have a lot more tension than some horror well, movies, and none of the well, ways yeah, that <laughs> none of the ways that this is really tense for me work in like a horrifying way. I'm not going. You know, it's not really a one where you finish the movie and you're like, look it over your shoulder. It's kind of like, oh, that was kind of a, that was kind of interesting. Oh, it's a different kind of horror. The thriller kind of horror is, no, it's you know, the, the worst kind of kind. Hitchcock. Is, it's not the worst kind. It's this the is... kind where you watch it and then it's done and it leaves your head the kind of horror it is. No, oh, no, you know, I've changed my mind. I'm jumping on Tyler's side here because Calvin's being a party pooper. <laughs> <laughs> The Shining is is genuine horror, and I think there was actually uh, really? a really good there, there's a really good comparison to it. Uh, one that I think is better, admittedly, that came out this year. I think the the Lighthouse has a lot of the same sense of horror, and even homages The Shining in a lot of very specific ways towards the climax with a lot oh. of the the act stuff going on. But it's it's got that same sense of horror that The Shining does. I do think The Shining is a horror movie for sure. Yeah, nobody's debating that here. No. Obviously, it's a it's a goddamn horror movie. I want to make that clear that the best. For, yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's been wrongly celebrated as one of the best, but it is one. Wow. Yeah, and and I don't I don't think it's uh, I do think it right, rightfully deserves a lot of praise for being one of the best. You know, in the same vein as like The Exorcist and such. Uh, what? It's just for, you what? <laughs> I'm saying it's in the same vein. I personally don't find it as effective as, but but I know it's a. I'm making that personal distinction it, as opposed to the consensual distinction. Uh, I mean, that's non-consensual for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, this would. <laughs> let, let let me ask you this: Would this go in your own like horror canon of like most important horror films, best horror films? Would you put it in what? there? <laughs> Tyler's. No, no you. for you, for your personal one. For yeah. me? Yes. Is this would this the fall shining? into your per- personal canon of best horror films? No. Uh, I mean, no? I think it's good. I think it's good uh, for a lot of other reasons. Well, okay. Well, what are the reasons? I want to hear the things that you like about it. That's what we're here for, right? My favorite thing about what it does for horror is brings back more of an orchestral score. I think the score that Kubrick usually leans into with like a. A 2001 or a Barry Lyndon is really interesting to bring into a horror context. So for that, I'm gratefully appreciative of what this movie brought into horror. Of course, because like my favorite Under the Skin is very orchestral and uh, violin sounding. So um, that kind of classical sense brought into the horror landscape is really important to me and something I think had been missing since 1980. So that's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the score is definitely one of the highlight aspects of it because there's the, especially the theme, it's got this deep trumpeting sound. I think it's like a, a tuba probably making that yeah. one for the, the famous, uh, you know, opening and such. But then you've got like a bunch of uh, psycho-esque strings for some of the more tense moments throughout. You've got the kind of ghostly choir that plays during some other moments as well. It's a really good mixture of all of these elements. And I think the score is uh, one of the most effective tools at creating the, the scares And of the don't film. forget the opening credits, man. The, some of my favorite opening uh, credits ever. They are really good. I you know I'm I'm curious because I actually I'm not a big fan of the opening. Oh credits. man, why not? Well, because uh, it's it's not necessarily the sequence; it's the text itself, which looks like you just pick the default text in your most basic video editing program with the blue color and everything. Ah uh, yeah. And they, they they just kind of scroll up the screen. I don't think they're very creative at all. But the actual 
um, like uh, going up the mountain, I think really builds some tension there along with the music. The actual sequence of the credits works well. Mm-hmm. What do you like about them so much? Uh, what he said, just uh, kind of build. Which one's that aimed at? Is that me? What's that? Huh? <laughs> uh, it, it reminds me of like uh, the Evil Dead like journey into the cabin as well. Mm-hmm. I get that sense as well, and that's the thing. You know what's actually interesting is the the exteriors for the Overlook Hotel. They're right over here, right next to me, over by on on Mount Hood. It's they like are in Oregon, third, aren't they? Whoa. Yeah, it's like a thirty minute drive or so over there to go check out the hotel. That's pretty cool. And yeah, oh, I actually. Go on. Uh, I was going to say, I haven't actually gone there yet. Sometime I'll go check it out. But, like, part of me is kind of hesitant to because you go in expecting the beautiful decadence of the interior in the film. And that's obviously not what it was because the entire interiors were shot, uh, you know, in London on a soundstage. Uh, I didn't, I didn't oh, yeah. know that. Yeah, yeah. so all well, the that... exterior is Oregon. But... Yep. Oh, and that's what makes uh, part of filming the interiors so impressive as well because, you know, those those sequences in, like, the Great Hall or whatever where, like, giant beams of light are pouring in. That's all, like, with, you know, giant fluorescent lights. They're they're shooting through the windows of the set. It's not real light. Mm-hmm. I think that, that stuff works. I, I mean, Kubrick is so deliberate in what he's doing that, I, you know, that stuff could be potentially interesting. A little bit strained for me, but, uh, I, I mean, for a horror movie, it's a little bit strained and... Um, I'm not really sure what the what the horror is like. What's scary about? Uh, I I think the scariest thing is when the boy's talking to his finger. God, I hate that. <laughs> I think it's it's so weird that you don't like the Tony bit. That it's why would a, I like it? So, oh, so, and it's not that you have to like it. It's that you actively dislike it, hate it even. <laughs> I know it. It's my least favorite thing about The Shining. It's such a specific thing. Um. So at the time there was a. Uh, King was writing a secondary story about a boy with ESP, and you could kind of feel that he forced it into the one that he was writing while he stayed at a hotel, and, you know, he had to combine some parts. You could tell it's not even really a part of what the story's trying to do. Like, The Shining doesn't really matter for this movie. Um, and that, that is the thing, I think, uh, if I have my biggest complaint with it, it's that the... the uh supernatural elements of the story do not mesh with the metaphorical aspect of the abusive father and the alcoholism that's laid in there. Uh, you know, Kubrick tries to strip away a bunch of the supernatural stuff and make it more about the metaphor, and so it seemed like you could just uh, kind of play it off as it all being, you know, the ghost of the mind or whatever, or the hallucinations. But there are actual physical presence that the ghosts have still. Like, there's the scene where Grady lets him out of the uh, the... the storage place mm-hmm. and so that uh, for me then you know because you have like a physical interaction and you make the supernatural elements of an actual thing happening then that kind of falls flat for a metaphorical aspect because then they're an actual real threat as opposed to just the the more relatable and i think terrifying aspect of the abusive alcoholic father uh is it being the real monster of the film I noticed this time that that's hinted a lot more early on than I thought. Of course, you have that blatant speech that uh, Shelley Duvall's character has with the therapist, but or the 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 counselor come to check on the kid, right? But um, I I didn't realize how terrified she was before they got there. So I think it hardly matters that anything spiritual or uh, mystical is really happening in The Shining because it's already there. I didn't realize that in previous watches. I. 
Does that stuff work? I can't agree that uh, it hardly matters. I think uh, the way Kubrick employs um, the supernatural elements that he does, obviously he holds a lot back from uh, Stephen King's writing, but the way he incorporates what he does, it it heightens the movie for me um, because it adds a sense of mystery and mystique and... um, ominousness that uh, wouldn't be present if it was just uh, a story about a dad kind of like losing his mind and like dealing with alcoholism like uh, there's all the mystery with the the hotel itself and uh, the supernatural and the shining of Danny um, and his connection with <laughs> that guy in Miami who comes up and um, the Scatman Crothers character, uh, I mean, Halloran. Dick Halloran, yeah. Scatman Crothers is just worth repeating because of the name. <laughs> he's great. Named he's Scatman great in the film. He, I love the speech with him between Danny talking about The Shining and everything because he's such the, a great. Yeah, performer. that's a great scene. And uh, I think ultimately, I'm still going to fall closer to Tyler as far as the supernatural stuff. I'm not advocating for its complete absence. It's just like the biggest thing that I have problems with The Shining is just the integration of things. Like, I feel like oh, yeah. the the metaphorical and the supernatural don't, you know, coalesce together uh, in the same way that I don't think the family all comes together. I don't believe uh, Shelley Duvall and Jack Nicholson share a relationship, even though they're both giving great performances. I just don't have a sense of chemistry or family unit with them. Yeah, I would not at all argue for its removal. I'd argue for, like, cohesive development within, like, the family unit and finding out what that means in their situation. Uh, I think, obviously... Further development would be good. I think, obviously, some of the best and most iconic moments for the film are some of the supernatural stuff. You know, we remember the the naked lady in the uh, the bathtub or the... The hallway of blood is pretty good. Yeah, of course, a huge, big, iconic moment. But I think the best moment for me is... I'm I'm very awed by the the party sequence where Jack sits down to have a drink with the bartender there, or the speech with uh, Grady later in the fabulously you know decadent red bathroom. I think that's a really great moment as well, and it's in these moments where I feel the tension really pulled out because the sequences are drawn for so long, and there's lots of pause in between, and that's when I think like even though the film is like two and a half hours long, which feels kind of long for this kind of story. Uh, I don't think the pacing ever feels off. I think the tension is wrought really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those those two scenes are pretty pretty spectacular. Uh, especially, I mean, I love both those scenes, but the scene at the bar for me is like uh, next level. I think that's probably the best scene in the movie where he's talking to the bartender. I- you know, I I think I agree with you because I think that's where I buy Jackson's sanity the best i think that's where it buys delusiveness because it's a it's a more humorous one it kind of it feels more real to me than like the first time we get a hint of it where he's just a malicious dick to shelly duvall and basically tells her to fuck off when he's writing or whatever but in the bar sequence i feel like it's it makes sense and you see the insanity in a more believable manner but also i just love the uh, the execution of it in general, I found myself this time really watching the people in the background and feeling like there was an actual party going on, even though it was like something that was never even really shot or focused on too much. Mm-hmm. Do you have any favorite scenes from the film, Calvin? No. Oh. No? That's not, not one? There, there was... 
Yeah, I mean, that, those scenes for sure. I think it's the bar scene. I think you guys are right on about that. Um, I think so. There's, you know, I I think once once Shelley Duvall finds out about what's happening with him, once she starts exploring his writing and gets the page, that's, that's always been the bit for me. Um, her realization, like, backing up the stairs with the bat... And then, like bludgeoning him, that's that's the that's the movie for me. That's I think that's a, a fair assessment as well. When anyone thinks about The Shining, they're thinking about that confrontation between Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall, especially the lead up to the bathroom stuff, as well there. And that's all I think really phenomenal stuff as well. And again, another moment where I'm like, all right, I feel the horror in this moment now. I feel like the unhinged uh, aspect of Jack's character is earned at this moment, you know, and it, it makes sense, and I believe it all in the sequence. And Shelley Duvall does a really great job of being in genuine terror, uh, probably just be at the behest of Kubrick torturing her throughout the shoot. Right. Yeah, uh, do you have any detail on that? Uh, not, like, a whole lot off the top of my head. I should have done a little more research beforehand. Um, but, yeah, you know, Kubrick was just generally... Uh, something of a tyrant on set, you know, and he's famous for his many, sometimes hundreds of takes for things, especially for The Shining here. He was very particular, and especially with Shelley Duvall, and he did not treat her well uh, intentionally so that she would feel more helpless uh, throughout the filming, you know. So it was a very specific uh, kind of, in the same way that Hitchcock would do things mm. like that as well, where he was intentionally torturous of his actresses to, to get that more panicked, uh, you know, reaction out of them. It is funny because my favorite horror movie is very Kubrick, but I don't think this one is. Um, I mean, Under the Skin, I think, is like advanced Kubrick, and I don't think this is even close. Wow. <laughs> oh, my God. What, what do you think is not Kubrickian about it? I Well, I don't think it works in a horror movie for me. I think he has too much sense of control, but... I think it's. It feels like he has like a mastery of it. It feels very safe to me. It feels like he's done eighty shots of of a scene, or it feels like it's a perfectionist work. I don't feel like on edge about it. I feel like everything will be okay. I don't know. I I, I don't know how to go about that other than disagreeing. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> because I feel like the the technical mastery of it is some of the the most appealing and uh, effective stuff. I, you know, is how I feel about it, certainly. But I get that, that there is a certain coldness to the film that there is to other Kubrick films, and that yeah. uh, kind of detaches you from maybe some of the more emotional uh, importantness of uh, aspects going on. Again, it's mostly for me is that I just don't feel the, the familiar unit coming together and interacting uh, in a natural way. And so that aspect of it and that tension is gone for me from that, uh, you know, uh, symbolic standpoint, I suppose. Yeah, I feel like part of it could just be like the abuse, but I think it goes too far away and too far into Kubrick coldness. Um, and I don't think it benefits in a horror movie. Uh, I think it might work very well in like Barry Lyndon. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about Barry Lyndon before. That was our first Kubrick podcast, and I think that's still the favorite from me and you. Uh, though I do feel it does have a bit more warmness than other Kubrick films. It's a little more affectionate to Barry. Uh, but I think The Shining is probably like your your primo uh, introduction to Kubrick, if you haven't watched any before. I guess um, if you don't want to watch any others, <laughs> start with this one. God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm regretting this. <laughs> <laughs> Tyler didn't know what he was coming into. 
you, you needed to prepare a little more, Tyler, and kind of come up with a whole defense. I was ready to, to shit on the movie myself here, but I didn't realize Calvin was like going to just entirely go against it. I mean, there's lots of admirable things about the movie, and I still really appreciate it. I give it a good score still. You did. Uh... Uh, my, Calvin's <laughs> melting my mind over here. <laughs> At a loss for words. Uh, All right. I might, well, let's. I might even prefer Doctor Sleep. I have to you know what? I, well, I was actually okay. gonna well, say well, I could see you liking Doctor Sleep more. I'm not gonna lie. I I see that outcome being a potential that I could have because I want a real horror movie that's really like a more traditional. Horror no. Movie. Okay. Then you're not. <laughs> Never mind. It's okay. not a. It's barely a horror movie. Um, it's more like I said. It leans way more into the supernatural elements so much so uh, that's what that I it there. almost so. becomes like a comic book movie because like it's centered around their powers. Hmm. I think I might want that. I don't. I don't know what I want. I, I have to find out from Doctor Sleep. Yeah. Well, well, there you go. That's your problem is that you don't know what you want to begin with. So well, of course you're not to, getting anything. I kind of have to see it first. I. I need to make up my mind once I see it, and I'll come back with that. Okay, I'll be excited to hear your thoughts on which is better. But uh, in the meantime, uh, let's give Tyler a bit of a spotlight, because I want to hear the things he really loves. I think that was the interesting aspect about bringing on uh, Shining Enthusiasts here, was to highlight some of the great things about it that we might disagree yeah, with. Yeah, let me tell you uh, why you guys are <laughs> very wrong about this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> No, I, I mean, um, so you're talking about uh, just just before that, uh, actually, like, in the Kubrick canon, so to speak, like, it's standing, and it sounds like you guys are kind of lower on it as far as uh, his filmography. Is that right? I, yeah, I would say it's, it, it's not the bottom for me, no, no way at all, but uh, it's, like, the low end of the highs. Like, I think I've got it at, like the fifth or sixth out of ten or whatever okay um i haven't i haven't seen all of uh kubrick i still got some more to catch up on um but from what i've seen uh it's easily this or 2001 for me um from what i've seen i kind of think those are his uh his masterworks I, i might still probably lean 2001 um hmm. but i mean this movie like i to say um, it sounds like you find um, some of its uh, meticulousness like off-putting, uh, Calvin, um, and to me like that's kind of the um, the allure of it. It's like everything is so like perfected. You can tell that they've done hundreds of takes like uh so i recently listened to um the rewatchables podcast episode for the shining um so i got some more like background knowledge on like um its production and stuff if you guys are curious about that like um uh that doorway where he uh hacks into it with the axe at the end and the famous moment you know here's johnny um (laughs) they did 60 doors it of takes uh before they did that so you just imagine they're bringing in door after door for nicholson to hack up to to get it just right um but uh i mean also i don't think we've talked enough about uh the performances Uh, i mean the movie's basically centered around three actors um duvall um 
Nicholson and let's see, Danny Lloyd is the son. And I think, mm-hmm. man, I think their performances in this movie like are what really puts it over the top too, aside from uh Kubrick's direction, because the three of them are incredible. Like So so here's here's the thing is that I totally 100% agree with this assessment is that I think each of them, they give fantastic performances. Jack Nicholson is so terrifying in many sequences. Shelley Duvall is appropriately terrified, and she's really, you know, she's got that perfect balance of shrill there going on, and Danny Lloyd is one of the, the best child performances I've seen. Like my, when he's my... talking to his finger. It's very yeah. uh my, my only real issue is that I feel like they don't work all together. Like, the relationship between the characters is never believable for me, and that's the, the issue. Uh, and I'm not sure if it's... I, I haven't identified if it's, like, a directing or casting issue as far as for who all goes here. But they just don't, like, coalesce for me. Um, I, I guess I could see that, but it just doesn't bother me. Um, like... It's like a personal thing, I think, at the end. Like, again, if you say that it's, you totally believe it, I'm like, sure. You know, you know, it's not, like, a definitive thing one way or the other. It's just my, my reading and my well, perception. To, the thing is, to me, I mean... To say they don't have a believable relationship, I guess, or um, they don't have chemistry, to me, that makes sense, because their family's kind of, like, uh, uh, broken. Uh, Jack Nicholson's character, he's, like, an alcoholic and, like, maybe somewhat abusive. Uh, Danny is um, a distant son because he's... A, he's witnessing this, but B, he has the shine, so to speak, and uh, is kind of like not a normal kid. Um, and then Shelley Duvall's character is just a, a bystander to all this madness between these two men in her life. And so you could see how she'd be pretty messed up, too. So, I mean, of course, they're not going to come off as like the best of friends. I think it you know, makes I, you want to feel the disassociation that's happening in their family, for sure. I, I totally get that reading, and I thought about that one as well. I'm like, is it just, like, this idea that they're supposed to be this broken family? But I feel like I need, like, a, a glimmer of there being something before. I felt like it really just, like, the best example of it was, like, that scene where Jack just totally rips into... Um, Wendy's character when she comes and bugs him when he's writing and I just it was just this it seemed almost out of nowhere and not even like in a satisfying out of nowhere sense where that's oh this guy's really you know unhinged or whatever it just felt like the film jumped in a part of its development there but also just that there uh there's never like a a normal interaction between any of them just as like a baseline of their relationship not even necessarily a good interaction just like a normal interaction it just all feels like people who hate each other it makes sense to me that stephen king wouldn't like it since those characters are supposed to represent his family and they read really false on the screen to me are there any i can't imagine for him how it feels are there any characters that King didn't base off himself in some way? <laughs> I'm sure I feel like they're all everything awkward. with the writer is autobiographical in some way. I mean, you you get there eventually. I don't know, man. Everything I hear about Stephen King, like it's never good stuff. <laughs> He's written a lot of like really? famous uh, famous books that that also turned into famous movies. But it sounds like, uh, you know, when people talk about Stephen King, they have nothing nice to say from, from what I hear. 
I mean, I don't know the guy, so I can't say specifically if he's good or not, but he doesn't seem like an awful person, just someone who's done lots of stuff. You know, he like he had like what his big cocaine binge as well as, you know, various other addictions, but I don't think that makes him necessarily a bad person by any means. I mean, I haven't heard anything wrong, especially that he's done. <laughs> yes. Like it, it it's mostly the substance abuse things that I've heard and that, you know, maybe he's a little off-putting in some ways, but, like, I haven't heard of that he's an out-and-out yeah. bad person. No, that's kind of not what I meant. I meant more... I kind of meant that, but I also meant more, like, um, a lot of uh, his adaptations into movies um, have tweaked stuff to make them better because a lot of his books, from what I hear, the book versions of what turned into great movies were more, like, off-the-rails and absurd um would you say that and it's interesting because king wrote the screenplay that uh, kubrick had already rejected and he went with another one so i could see the tension there well this basically set the ground for cooper or, or king as well to just like have like full approval of it what like the same decade he did pet cemetery and it was like very specifically like you have to do this version of the film that i wrote that has everything in it still and so that's part of the problem why pet cemetery just because it's not adapted super well but uh as for your question there tyler uh i think there's actually lots uh um i mean with any book i think you know tweaks need to be made in certain areas but i and i agree with the sense that there are some more absurd things and about every uh, King book I've read so far, but they're they're always very entertaining, and I think uh, I've seen a lot more. I mean, and there's so many adaptations of his stuff that it, there's always going to be some bad ones, but generally, I think he has lots of good adaptations under the belt, and I think I'd, The Shining is a good it. one despite the changes. Yeah, I'd say that Misery is my favorite, and also the most literal to the book. I've I've agreed with this. The Misery was our third podcast. That's where we first expressed our uh, greater disdain for The Shining over Misery. Wow. That's right. uh, <laughs> I, I, I actually no, can't say I haven't seen Misery uh, in full. Oh my god, Tyler. Tyler, that's my favorite horror okay. movie. You know that? Hey, you're gonna have to um, make it my assignment then. Oh, we'll see. We'll see if... Uh, we got lots of things, but the, I I love that one especially, and I love the the adaptation. It's a case where I do feel like the film is better as well, but I like his approach to uh, the story of a writer as well, uh, greater I mean, than like The Shining, which is another element I think of the film that you don't get a good sense of. The writing feels like a a catalyst to things in the same vein as uh, the alcoholism. It doesn't feel like it has a true effect on the end mm -hmm. product there. I'm not a large King fan either. I mean, Misery's my favorite book, but uh, as far as the non-fiction stuff, I think Dance Macabre and On Writing are his best books he's written. <laughs> All right, I uh, recently... Well, I do... um, I, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go. go. I, uh, I recently re-watched uh, re um, Shawshank Redemption, and God, that's that's an amazing movie too. Uh, not not horror, still, uh... but uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and the same with the other other ones. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the other adaptations, Frank Darabont. Yeah, did. Green Mile. Uh, I'm a little more. I'm a little more partial to Green Mile personally because I grew up with that one a lot more. But also, he did uh, The Mist, which is also pretty great, but not as good yeah, as those. Okay. I think. Um, I I mean King just has a plethora of books that adapt very well. Um, mm -hmm. 
Uh, I mean, the first It chapter we got was really good. The TV It movie is good. I, I didn't really watch the new Except one Except for yet. the second half. The, the second half of the TV It kind of goes off the walls and yeah, it gets stupid weird. territory. But that's, Sounds again, like the, that's a problem the with the does book. too. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I do have one last shining thing I kind of want to address before we wrap up here. It's a little tangential, but maybe you guys will bear with me for it. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on Room 237? The movie? Like the documentary? Yeah, the documentary. Okay, yeah. I uh I started <laughs> that documentary um the last time I rewatched uh The Shining, I think I got home cuz I actually got to see it in the theater at one of those Fathom events. Um and then I got home and I was like, "All right, now I'm going to watch uh, Room 237." And I started it and I thought it was bad and I shut it off. I was like, uh, "No thanks." I think I think you're being generous well, with your word there. Bad is is a very nice way of putting it. Okay, good. I thought it was just me. I'm like, what is this, man? No, that that might be the worst documentary I've okay, ever seen. Yeah, glad we're on the same page. Because it it gives a platform to legitimately crazy people who have the most batshit and stupid theories that I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nothing uh, made sense. Count. <laughs> Calvin, do you remember any of the, the anecdotes and such that they have from there? I remember 237 has something to do with the distance of the Earth to the moon, and it revealed that Kubrick shot the the moon landing. And there's, there's so much moon conspiracy bullshit shoved in there. There's like one bit where they point out that uh, on the little tag for the door to, to room thir- 237, it says room and then it has the number marked by an N-O. And the guy says, the only other word you can make with those letters is moon. So That's obviously true. that means they oh right. And then they like t- they tie the bit. They're like, oh, Danny's wearing an Apollo 11 shirt. He's clearly signaling to the audience that he faked the moon landing. <laughs> and then there's, there's just so much stupid bullshit crammed into there. There's like, and, and the one that always sticks out to me is that there's a that really there's that famous look of that Jack Nicholson have where he's kind of staring out the window uh and just has this like total dead look on his face and they mm. and they're trying to point out that his eyebrows are arched in a way to make you think that he's like a minotaur <laughs> because apparently the this idea of being a minotaur is a big thematic thing throughout the film there's even like they have this they point out this poster like way in the like the tiny in the frame like behind a door almost and it's like it's in this vague shape of a minotaur it's just so much stupid bullshit linked together and like i just i was so flabbergasted watching the documentary and infuriated because it was just so inane and ridiculous i was i was angry and <laughs> I, I wasn't I, that I think, angry <laughs> I, I was very angry I was very angry but I guess I don't, I don't like Holmes shining people. on like a pedestal that's untouchable either it, w- it wasn't the shining thing it had nothing to do with that I, it, it wasn't that they were stomping on sacred ground or anything it was just that the stupidest people were given credence in this documentary and being treated like their, their inane bullshit was like an actual valid take on things in this film just any film really like if you you adapt this to anything else i'd be just as furious it's an absurd reading it it's, it's no the sense most at all. ridiculous as people should be locked up god damn it was it. basically like <laughs> uh reddit conspiracy thread like in movie form and I'll, uh, <laughs> it was like an adapted reddit yeah. <laughs> it was awful and it, it was so sad watching these people because like you could tell they genuinely believed this about the film mm-hmm. 
I mean, I, I just, believe there's probably something, right? I mean, Kubrick's so deliberate that, I mean, all, there's all probably right. intentionality behind these shots they cling on to, but I don't think it means so, so there, I think it does. There was, one, there was one detail I learned from it that I thought maybe had some something worth exploring, and that there there is a lot of Native American iconography kind of sprinkled throughout the hotel. Some of the stuff in the cabinets, like they got the food stuff, has like an Indian... Uh, uh, figure on it and stuff they've got like a big buffalo head on the wall and places and lots of paintings throughout the interior and of course the big thing is that the you know the hotel's built on an indian burial ground and so like the film is kind of they, they had this idea that it might be a metaphorical representation of the genocide of the uh, native american population or something like that and i'm like oh there's there's something there i feel it and it's kind of grasping at but i don't get enough of that yet and instead it's straight back to oh kubrick faked the moon landing and here's this little tiny detail about it that might indicate it. stupid so stupid yeah i, I want to go so far yeah. as to say it was a metaphor for uh um taking land from the native americans or genocide or that but uh there's definitely something to that because um one thing that stood out to me was um what was it? in the vehicle on their way to the hotel um jack was saying how something with the cannibals there um can't oh yeah or maybe that's what you meant by uh the indian burial ground um and then i think at one point in the movie you can hear like chanting um with the score that sounded mm -hmm. like in that vein too um i don't know i i think yeah, there is something but... to that there's something there, certainly, but I again, like I said, the the documentary definitely doesn't go into it enough, and I haven't seen a, a strong enough reading outside of there to really latch on to. Uh, if anything, it it might just be in uh, like unintentional stuff that's kind of built around it, and it kind of works into the mythos. But it's it's I don't think it's an entirely intentional thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's nice details. I think it really adds to the film in many ways, and I guess the stupid documentary was good for at least showing me that and i think there are probably some people who could get entertainment out of just how asinine the whole thing is i think that's how i took it is <laughs> just in like a like i was watching a conspiracy theorist analyze a movie that's that's entirely a hundred percent what it was and that's not what i went in expecting so i was just i was i was kind of furious at having to put up with the stupidity <laughs> of it the whole time oh yeah i think i knew beforehand i'd already read all about this and I knew where they were coming from. Yeah, I just, I can't believe that you would want to give that, that thing a voice, that idea. The Shining? Of those. No, no, not The Shining. The the uh, stupid conspiracy theories. I was going to say, we almost gave it 40 minutes, and it's a long time yeah. to give this. this oh my god. I, I can't believe how negative you came out on this. I was, I was prepared to team up with you, Calvin, and kind of go in and poke holes in The Shining and have fun, like, you know, uh, desecrating it a bit but i don't know you gone too far man i'm back on on uh tyler's side here I shining always, is great I always thought it deserves its I reputation i should say that uh, i was always very cynical about it because warner brothers just needed a horror movie at the time and they needed something to come in and uh kubrick had to finish a film for them and he didn't really want to do a horror movie but he was stuck on this script and uh, it it shows they doesn't really care about the genre to me. What that <laughs> that that is it, not what I mean, happened. It shows to me that he hasn't learned and studied th through the genre and found out like what really makes horror click. Like I can't think of any moment that you know it, that feels practice you know, and learned from the history of horror movies or something. 
Well, that's that's not that doesn't I think delegitimize its horror aspects and the fact that so it resonates with so many people. I think kind of takes away from your idea here that it's no, not you know, really. I mean, n- not it, practice. <laughs> it could you're, be a you're right, movie. Calvin. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Your take on this is completely correct. I mean, it's uh, not incorrect. But, <laughs> yes, yeah. I'm not saying it's incorrect either, but th- it has a reputation for good reason. It resonates with a lot of people, and I see a lot of what makes it the film. Uh, really work and I, and it does really work for me i just don't think it's it's personally not like the best horror film ever for me but when tyler says it is i believe it and i support there's, it there's no, there's two two more um <laughs> big things i wanted to point out um to win you oh. guys over so to speak uh all right i'm, <laughs> I'm ready to hear it uh first uh is i mentioned the performances uh, briefly i, I want to touch on again though uh Danny's performance for I don't know how old he is in this movie um but look that could have gone bad he's like a young boy and uh let me tell you I watched the Phantom Menace last night uh (laughs) young child actor performances can derail a movie and be very bad and that doesn't happen here he's he's legitimately like really great um I, th- I think you could argue for him as the best actor in the movie, the best performance. Uh, I think it shows really how great of a director Kubrick was. That he gave so much attention and pulled that, that great child performance out of him. I'd probably say his finger is probably the best actor in the movie. <laughs> uh, well, from what I heard, um, apparently Kubrick didn't tell... He like really uh, shielded uh, Danny and he didn't tell him that this was a horror movie. And uh, Danny didn't actually realize that until years later. Uh, yeah, that cool. is pretty cool. I didn't that's know that. Um, so that's that. And the other thing I wanted to point out that we didn't mention is uh, the tracking shot of uh, him riding yes. the big wheel. Man, that's awesome. I love that so much. And It's well, so funny a... that he didn't know it was a horror movie because neither did I until this point. <laughs> That's actually, uh, Tyler, that's some of the first innovative stuff with the Steadicam done because uh, it was invented and used like first back in like Rocky in 76. But yeah, all of that tracking way, stuff throughout the hotel I think is he, some really great innovative camera Yeah, work. it's phenomenal. Cooper had brought on the same guy who had invented the Steadicam and worked on Rocky there. Oh, so cool. You get a lot of the same uh, feeling behind his shots and... That guy was kind of going between like London and Philadelphia, shooting Rocky Two and this at the same time. So, uh, there's a lot of really great Steadicam work in here that is really foundational for horror. I think. Yeah, I love uh, too great. when when he's riding the big wheel. Um, the sound design too, you can hear like the chugging of the wheel like along the floor. You know, it's mm-hmm. really good. It's so good. I, I love those shots so much. Like I said, the the score and the cinematography are the strongest aspects of the film to me. Uh, those are what really resonate with me and make me think it's it's such an expertly crafted film. Mm-hmm. I'll also say too, um, I I bought this on 4K. Uh, that new release, I think it just got released like a month mm-hmm. ago, maybe. Um, something like that. Man, yeah. it looks good in 4K too. Really uh, recommend that I, new transfer. I'll have to upgrade from my, my DVD eventually. I liked uh, some of the artwork they had with it, so I think that was interesting. Well, uh, I think that's a, a good place to stop. I think the last word we heard here from Calvin was a positive one, <laughs> so I want to cut it before he sneaks in another jab hey, at the film. I think I'll throw my DVD away, but you guys enjoy your, your transfers. <laughs>
No, I, I, right, well, I, I, I want to make it clear that I do like The Shining. I don't think it's a great horror movie. <laughs> all right. Send all your hate mail to Calvin this week. Please do. Uh, <laughs> thanks again, Tyler, for coming on and joining us and talking up uh, The Shining. Uh, we def- desperately needed you here to praise it after seeing how much Calvin did not want to. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, glad I could represent. Sorry to blindside you. You kind of did, but uh, <laughs> hey, that's okay. I'll get you back sometime. You're- Hey, you blindsided me too, and I was—I thought I was on the same page, but I feel like we're fighting different <laughs> battles over here. <laughs> <laughs> that divisive.